from the fucking DMV today. Oh, why do you get, why does work have your cell number? They don't, but most places don't let you plug in an extension. Oh, motherfuckers. So whenever I have to wait and get a call back, I use my cell phone. So my office phone, like I don't know it, but I know that there's a way to make a direct line to me without an extension. There probably is a direct line. I don't I'm not even going to attempt to figure out how to do that fair enough in theory i could get paid for using my phone but then they would also have access to my phone so no i should get paid to use my phone with the regularity i'm required to use my personal device for work you should have they should have been paying your cell phone when you were salary see here's the thing the way the way i justify it in my head is they don't have to pay my phone which i use for work I'm not going to help them pay their Wi-Fi, which I regularly use for my own personal gain. <laughs> Fair trade-off. I will let it be at that. Speaking of Wi-Fi, you know what you can download using Wi-Fi? What? New episodes of this podcast. That's right. <laughs> we really using that as a this, <laughs> Fuck it. We're using it. Perfect. This is another episode of Soon to Be a Major Motion Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies that were made into books, except the opposite of that. <laughs> oh, honey, you've had two sips. I've had two sips of my hard Arizona peach tea, and I am a two-sip twink. It doesn't work as, it doesn't work as well without the rhyme. It does not. <laughs> Does not work as well without the rhyme. You're Who t- are you? Your two drink twink host, Mr. Billy Beck. And your not embarrassing lightweight host, Cody Beck. I seem to recall you having one Mike's Hard Lemonade and being unable to stand. I chugged it in two minutes. I was excited to see you for some reason and I was also redacted years old. <laughs> that redacted is clearly over 21. <laughs> and slash or this took place in a country that is not the United States of America. <laughs> for legal reasons, the past conversation was for comedic purposes and is not to be taken truthfully. <laughs> Cody, how have you been? I got bangs. You did. Uh, the despite the lack of emotion, or the despite the emotional distress that implies, it was intentional. I thought about it. I scheduled the appointment, and I got bangs. That's really the only. You, you can <laughs> hardly tell because your hair grows faster than Usain Bolt runs. It's true. My hair, my bangs were at my eyebrow when they first got cut, and now they are already underneath my glasses. And you got the them, like, three weeks ago? Yeah. It yeah. hasn't even been a month yet. Yeah. Whee! Other than that, it's a new year, so work is a shit show because it's 
a fine I work in a financial institution. The beginning of the year is always a shit show because it's everything rolling over. How about you? My, my sister in Christ. Just because January felt like a whole year, February 1st is not a new year. Yes, it is. It is a new year. <laughs> January did feel like an entire year. It is now a new year. Okay. I am girl mathing January. <laughs> Uh, you asked how I have been. Mm-hmm. I have done nothing of note. I'm continuing my uh, years-long, at this point, playthrough of the Yakuza franchise. <laughs> I am roughly halfway through Yakuza 4. And it is such a fun time. It is a delightful video game, even just to watch someone play. Uh, we went to a party last weekend. Yes, yes we did. We went to a Royal Rumble party last weekend. (laughs) We were the only two people at this party who knew anything about professional wrestling. If you ever want to feel like the weirdest kid in the room, go to a room with relative, go to a party with relatively normal people and start talking about professional wrestling. So the gimmick of this party was... Everyone draws numbers from a hat, and then when a wrestler enters the Royal Rumble at your number, they are your wrestler. And when they are eliminated from the Royal Rumble, you take a shot. Just in case you live under a rock and don't know what the Royal Rumble is, it is a 30-person match in which people enter every 90 seconds? Or two minutes, or one minute, depending on what year. Yeah. This year it was 90 seconds, and uh, you are eliminated by being thrown over the top rope, and the winner gets a shot at the belt of their choice at WrestleMania, the main title belt. So, since you drove us to this party... Oh, the other gimmick was when your wrestler gets eliminated, you have to take a shot. I did say that. Oh, did you? Yes. I wasn't listening. I'm the one drinking. <laughs> uh, speaking of, on Saturday, I was the one drinking, because you drove... <laughs> I did drive. I am blessed that one of my wrestlers won the Women's Royal Rumble and one of yours won the men's, so I only had to take 10 out of the possible 12 shots. The best part about it was we were the ones that had the wrestling knowledge and we were the ones that won and also Cody Rhodes, who's one of my favorite one of my like top five wrestlers he walked into a room in 2017 that you were in and you almost passed out he's very he's very handsome he's, okay he's very handsome also You're not we wrong. have the same name which is very exciting yes uh but yeah it was it was a, a very fun time when, whenever a wrestler would enter we would scream or go yeah or boo or oh man i hate this guy and everyone else in the room was just huh <laughs> it got to the point where people were like, alright, what's the backstory? What's the lore? <laughs> there was one guy at the party, I'm not going to name and shame, um, who actually like watched the other matches with us. Everyone else played beer pong during the other matches on the show. Yeah. But he was actually getting into it, and it was such a joy. I knew we'd get one. I was hoping we'd get like half the room and we'd be able to like throw on collision or something <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> but that didn't happen. Also, the other very important part about this was there was an eight-week-old puppy at this party. Oh, <laughs> Charles. And we 
spent a significant portion of the party playing with the puppy, and by we, I mean me. Yes. Uh, Bill is not a dog person. I enjoyed the puppy's uh, presence at points. <laughs> the the family who we visited, and I, I say family in the modern two adults and pets sense, mm-hmm. they have, is it six cats and six dogs? They, I counted while we were there, they have eight and seven. Eight dogs and seven cats. Okay. A lot of animals. They're not all pets, though. No, uh, she works in the film industry with animals. And so, alongside all of the animals are uh, posters from ad campaigns that the animals featured in. And it was very sweet. And I'm trying to not use a lot of details because... Mm, yeah. But... Yeah, it was, it was a fun, fun time. We haven't been to a party in ages like that, so it was yeah. it was great. It was very fun. Had a good time. And uh, we won, which is the important part. <laughs> you and I both won. We were accused of cheating because we had the insider knowledge, which <laughs> is something we definitely could have done. <laughs> no one knew what their numbers were by the end, so we could have just cheated. Yeah, we didn't, though. We did not, because we are not like the former CEO of the company. Uh... Vince. Uh, speaking of, I was gonna say blood-sucking vermin. Oh, I was gonna say problematic men in power. Speaking of people who should be eaten. <laughs> what was our uh, piece of media for this? So podcast? it is. It is the eighth day of February, which means next week is Valentine's Day. And what greater romantic tale is there? than the 2010 novel Warm Bodies or the 2013 film also called Warm Bodies. <laughs> Cody, yes. when were you first made aware of Warm Bodies? The novel, not the general concept. Uh, so my introduction to Warm Bodies was a friend of mine in college sent me a direct message on Instagram with an advertisement attached and just said, quote, I thought this was Bill, unquote. (laughs) It was the trailer for the movie. So this would have been 2013. Yep. Or 2012, probably, when the trailer came out. Yeah. Um, and this friend, uh, and I and a couple other friends ended up going to see the movie and I didn't find out until much later, uh, after we lived here and I started going to the Iliad bookstore regularly and I stumbled across the book in the little cheap section and I was like, oh my God, there's a book. So this would probably have been 2016. So, you know, three, four years after I had seen the movie and I picked up the book, read it. Enjoyed it. We no longer have it. (laughs) (laughs) I just instinctively looked towards the bookshelf where it lived for three or four years. Yep. Uh, And that that was my introduction to it. William, what was your introduction to this piece of media? If I recall correctly, you sent me the same trailer and said, yo, is this you? Uh, So the movie came out. Uh, In the United States, 11 years ago to the day we're recording it, February 1st, 2013. That's gross. In the UK, 11 years ago to the day you're listening to this, February 8th, 2013. Really? 
premiered in the U.S. first. Mm-hmm. It actually premiered in like, I want to say like Singapore or something in January, oh. or like Russia got it a day or some some shit like that. But who cares? Yeah. Which uh, the movie came out. I'm trying to do math in my head here. Twelve days after I moved to Los Angeles, so I'm still bright-eyed, young, getting into circles with other young aspiring actors, trying to figure some things out. And every day, some stranger says, oh my god, are you the guy from Warm Bodies? Because at the time, I weighed maybe 145 pounds. Soaking wet. I wore, I still wear Chuck's jeans and a hoodie almost every day. I had the same haircut as Nick Holt does in this movie. It got to the point where that summer, I was shooting a student film out in like Riverside or some shit. Oh my god, I didn't realize it was that. It was that student oh. film. It was a terrible film. I'm not going to name it. And uh, I'm not going to tell you how to find it. It's Because it did not come out good. I had a lot of fun doing it because I was doing something I liked doing. Oh, did you have a lot of fun? I liked acting and being on set. I always did. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about that. Uh, and one of the fun things we did on one of the overnight shoots was we managed to convince we being myself and the director and a few of the other actors we managed to convince one of the guys on set that I was the guy from Warm Bodies and like we had smartphones at the time I'm not that old but the screens were smaller and the footage was grainier so somebody even showed him a trailer and he looked at the trailer and looked up at me and went yeah I see it and we had this guy convinced I don't remember if we ever told him the truth I feel like the other important thing to bring up is that you also had insomnia problems, so you looked like you had been punched in the face constantly. Oh yeah, constant black circles under my eyes. This was this was pre-legalization of weed, and I was too afraid to see a weed doctor because I thought I wouldn't go to heaven or something. So like sleeping just didn't happen most nights for me. Yeah, and I was living in that house with six other people. That might have even been that period of time where... I got home from an overnight shift at work, and the guy who lived in the room where my light switch was, long story, put a bookshelf in front of the door so I couldn't turn off my light, and I had to use an oven mitt to unscrew the light bulb when I wanted to go to sleep. Things were hard. You lived in a literal closet. I lived in a literal walk-in closet for a year when I moved to Los Angeles. 400 bucks a month in Pasadena. You know, honestly, having visited you in that closet, would have been an incredible closet. was not a great bedroom. No, it was a terrible bedroom. <laughs> the bathroom had a wasp problem. I believe we've mentioned the wasp. The, the shower wasps. Sh- shower wasps. Before. Hey, me and the shower wasps were cool, alright? So, uh, now that we've talked about the nightmare apocalyptic scenarios of your living situation, let's talk about the nightmare apocalyptic scenario of the book. Yes, please tell me about the book you read. It's a man talking at you for 300 pages. You're going to need to be more specific. The book takes place very, with the exception of the epilogue, entirely in R, the zombie's head. He is experiencing ennui. Uh, you watch him go on a hunting trip, uh, and then he gets married and has kids, and then... Um, Goes on another hunting trip because he feels unfulfilled, and oh no, there's an attractive woman, attractive young girl on the hunting trip, so instead of killing her, he brings her back to the airport where he lives. 
And then, because she's still alive, uh, it causes some problems. So they have to go back to the stadium where she lives. Which causes some problems. <laughs> and ultimately, uh, the zombies win by not giving up on being alive? It's a lot of men having philosophical thoughts and realizing that other other people have also thoughts and feelings. Did you know they made a movie out of that book? <laughs> yes! <laughs> you, yes, I did! Do you want to see the trailer for it again? Yes! <laughs> the one in which we've described how the main character looks like me multiple times? I don't think I've watched this trailer since the movie came out. I... Probably haven't watched it since shooting that film, honestly. What am I doing with my life? I just want to connect. Why can't I connect with people? All right, it's because I'm dead. I wish I could introduce myself, but I don't remember my name. I think it started with an R. That's all I have left. It's kind of a bummer. I shouldn't be so hard on myself. I mean, we're all dead. This is my best friend. We even have almost conversations sometimes. call these guys bonies. They'll eat anything with a heartbeat. I mean, I will too, but at least I'm conflicted about it. Nice watch. and he's learning to be human again. Oh my god, is that him? Yeah. Seth. He started something here. Whatever it is that you two have, it's infecting the others. Dad, they're somehow curing themselves. They are not curing themselves. <gasps> Come with me. everything. We're seeing corpses fighting skeletons, sir. How do we shoot? Shoot this! Hi. Huh? How'd you die? How old are you? Because you could be 20-something, but you could also be a teenager. You know, you have one of those faces. Yeah, I forgot that Lonely Boy was the trailer song for that. That was my, like, wake-up alarm throughout most of 2013, which says a lot about where I was mentally at that time. <laughs> uh, that's funny. They really de-aged him for the, for the movie. They really did. All I, right. Yeah, I forgot to mention that he's not sure whether he's in his 20s or 30s in the book. Yeah, he's like 22 in the movie. So... Let's run down the movie. 
Two households, one lacking in dignity in nondescript American city where we lay our scene. From recent plague break to mutant zombie, where corpse blood makes bony hands unclean. From forth the zombie loins of this apocalypse, a pair of star-crossed lovers find their life, whose misadventured government overthrows do with their love bury her parents' strife. Okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> That was actually pretty good. I'm very pleased. R, a nonverbal zombie with a surprisingly verbose internal monologue, lives in an airport with hundreds of other zombies, including his best friend, M. One day they search for food, which leads them to Julie's salvage party in a pharmacy. R kills Julie's boyfriend, Perry, and eats his brain, which gives him Perry's memories. R then falls in love with Julie and takes her to his airplane to keep her safe. Over time, he becomes more verbal and more human. After a few days, R decides to return Julie home. They spend a night in suburbia where R confesses he killed Perry. As R dreams for the first time that night, Julie sneaks out and returns to the human compound where her father is in charge. R also sneaks into the compound successfully, as he is nearly human. In a nearby stadium, other zombies who are starting to turn human because of R and Julie's love help human soldiers fight off an onslaught of bonies, which are skeletal super zombies with no hope left. After R protects Julie from a long fall, he is shot by Julie's father and bleeds because he is now a real boy. Dad has a change of heart and humans learn to live with zombies and eradicate the bonies and everyone lives happily ever after the end. Yay! I'm so proud of that <laughs> Romeo and Juliet opening. That was, that was pretty good. I'm actually, I'm very impressed. Well done. I'm glad you liked it. You, you want to know how long into the movie it took me to realize it was Romeo and Juliet? Was it the fucking balcony scene? It sure goddamn was! <laughs> Same here! <laughs> Which, honestly, upon this reread, the book might... I would have to do a lot of research, but I'm pretty sure the book is actually, like, scene for scene. I didn't research further into that, but I did read something about that earlier, that the book is basically just a retelling of Romeo and Juliet with zombies. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, you've got R, Romeo. Yeah. R is Romeo, Julie is Juliet. M is Mercutio. Yep. Uh, Perry is Paris. No, that's the prince. Um, I definitely... Perry is, Perry's definitely, uh, Tybalt. The cousin that dies that kicks off the war. Oh, yeah, maybe. I read some, somebody said Perry is Paris. That might have been, like, IMDB trivia. That's true. I mean, that might be where the name comes from. Yeah, probably. But character-wise, he fits better with Tybalt. I'm a level with you. I haven't read Romeo and Juliet in literally 20 years. Fair. February freshman year of high school. Don't ask me why I remember that so well. That's actually probably when I read it last as well. Um, Nora is the nurse. Yes. <laughs> Colonel Grigio is... Paris, pa the prince. Pa Capulet. Or, yeah, that actually yeah. is probably accurate. Yeah. Um. <laughs> pa. That's his name, right? <laughs> pa. Yep. <laughs> sure. So, I, I don't remember the Bonies being as big a part of the movie, um, but they are... The book ends very differently than the movie does. So go into that. Go uh, go into how the book ends, because that's going to be probably uh, important to know for where we're going. So I have to start a little bit earlier. 
Um, he does not tell Perry, or he does not tell, R does not tell Julie that he killed Perry until after he has already attacked a soldier after they're, they're drinking in the stadium. Does he actually attack someone inside the stadium in the movie? R? Yes. Like a human? Yes. No. Okay. So, so in the movie, uh, the stadium is not... Because it sounds like the humans all are in the stadium. Yes. Like post-Katrina, <laughs> Superdome. Oh, fuck, yeah. 2010, that makes sense. In the movie, in, in establishing shots, it's not made perfectly clear, but in establishing shots, it looks like they blocked off like maybe like 12 square blocks of city. And on the edge of that is the stadium. And no one lives in the stadium, but it is the way that Julie and Perry are able to get out of the compound without... Because there's a one weakness in the wall in the stadium. Like, the stadium is part of the wall. Okay. And that's where the climactic battle also happens. But they don't live there. So, in the book, what has happened is humanity kind of walled itself into the stadiums. The, the living people have walled themselves into the stadiums. And they're slowly pushing out as they need more space. But everyone lives in the stadium, and they basically kind of turned it into... The way it's described feels really similar to, like, the favelas in Brazil. It's increasingly rickety, essentially skyscrapers just built on top, uh, very narrowly crammed into a small space that was not meant to hold them that way. Gotcha. Uh, And the conditions are also deplorable, which is why I use the analogy of the favelas. So, uh... The stadium is where all the living people are. There are still some people that haven't made it into the stadium. So some people do live in like random houses and such, but they're more vulnerable that way. It's gotten to the point where humanity kind of doesn't really subsist on, they have nothing left. They are essentially highly militarized. That doesn't necessarily mean they're skilled at it. But it means that, like, their life is ex- extremely... It reminds me of fucking Mockingjay. The way people in 13 live. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Very similar. Like, sort of... Is it, like, similar, like, an authoritarian regime? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that makes sense. Because that's kind of... It seems like there's a little bit more freedom in the movie than at least what Mockingjay did. Like, there's, there's a level of choice, and there's a level of, um, there's, like, levels to the labor. Like, Perry's dad was one of the guys who was working on the wall, and he died during an attack on the wall at one point. And at one, like, when he and Julie are dating, uh, we get a lot of flashback scenes. Like, three or four times throughout the movie, R will take another bite of Perry's brain, which he keeps on his person for reasons. Uh... And we'll get more flashback scenes of how they met leading up to the attack, basically. Where Perry gets got. Uh, But one of their early, like, dates is dinner with her dad, who's in charge. And he's like, oh, son, you're going to work on the wall with your dad? It's it's good work. And then after his dad gets killed, he joins the attack force, basically. Or the raiding raiding party, scavengers. Security is what his designation is, which they're salvage parties. Salvage parties, yeah. Which is where... The, the story begins in earnest is when the salvage party gets attacked by hunting zombies. Which, oh boy, the cat's got the zoomies. Luna. Luna, do you want to chill the fuck out? 
<laughs> so Harry's dad actually dies um, not in a zombie attack. A brick hits him in the head. And that's what takes him out. And that's his kind of, that's Perry's kind of final thread. Because when he agrees to do uh, security, when he switches to security, he tells the second in command, he's like, you die anyway? His death was so senseless, at least I want to go out fighting zombies. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the... Thesis, the heart of the book is that, are you going to hold on to hope or are you going to give in to despair? And you are, you're given basically R, who is, despite already being a zombie, still hopeful. And you have Perry, who despite being living, living has given up and given in to despair. Mm-hmm. But the ending of the book is the Bonies are doing, a, are launching a full-on assault on the stadium. And, um... R and Julie go into the stadium because they are trying to uh, convince her dad that the Bonies are the real enemy. They go up onto the roof and they have a climactic sunset kiss where they exchange fluids. Ew. And it's a sloppy kiss. The way it's described is basically R feels the, like, death, the anti-life, trying to go into Julie, and he stops it. And Julie basically, it's almost described as, like, they they catch the anti-life between them and, like, kill it, kind of. But Julie, instead of her eyes being blue, now her eyes are yellow, um, because she's been touched by death but survives, it's very clearly like R has gray eyes, Julie has yellow eyes. It's like she is the sun and he <sighs> is the moon, etc. So those are literal lines from Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> it is the east. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou zombie? No, no. She literally says that into her tape recorder during the balcony scene. Oh, I'm sorry. What? Literally, not those exact words, but she has a very similar thing where she's basically like, "Why, why are, you are you a zombie?" Zombie. Oh God. Yeah. That's so on the nose. Isn't it though? <laughs> so on the nose. So her, her dad catches them, and he basically is threatening to shoot R, even though R is now alive. Like he is talking about how he is now, like he feels his heart beating. He is alive. What happens instead is that uh, Julie. It's hard, and there's, like, a fight scene happening, and Julie stabs him in the hand, and he starts sliding down the stadium, and Boney, which is clawing its way up the stadium, kind of, is described as leisurely starting to take bites out of him, and her dad doesn't fight it, and Julie's, like, screaming at him, she's like, fight it, dad, and he's like, no, I'm sorry I failed you, and the, ultimately, um... The bony pulls him off of the stadium, and it's described as like he is shriveling and becoming a bony. And it is basically a very heavy-handed way of saying that giving into despair is literally what makes you a zombie. They the author goes into uh, Isaac Marion is the author. Yeah, he's very careful 
not to say where this came from because he talks about how he's like, oh, people thought it was a lab-released virus. People thought it was a plague. People thought it was... <laughs> people thought it people was... People thought it was a hoax and that everything would just blow over in two weeks. By April, there will be no cases left. This is really uncomfortable to read right now because the, one of the lines that sticks with me is... Um, he describes it... R describes it as living with... Fear that never quite caught on fire until there was nothing left to catch. I think I actually pulled a quote uh, of the ending. So this is the... This is our kind of realizing what they have to do. Starting to get the germ of the idea. Pun intended? (laughs) The universe is compressing. All memory and all possibilities squeezing down to the smallest of points as the last of their, the bonies, flesh falls away. To exist in that singularity, trapped in one static state for eternity, this is the bonies world. They are dead-eyed ID photos frozen at the precise moment they gave up their humanity. That hopeless instant when they snipped the last thread and dropped into the abyss. Now there's nothing left. No thought, no feeling, no past, no future. Nothing exists but the desperate need to keep things as they are, as they always have been. So essentially... So, bonies are conservatives. (laughs) Kinda. Humans are liberals. Zombies are centrists. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, General Grigio, uh, Julie's last name is Grigio, which is actually kind of a funny joke. All the people that love her in the book, uh, she goes by the last name Cabernet. (laughs) And the joke is that she's more of a Cabernet than a Grigio. That's great. Um, She's She's not a Capulet? The General Grigio perishes. He's now become a bony, and they kind of all retreat. Because the force of R and Julie's love is bringing back the hope for the rest of the zombies. And not all of them are, not all of them come back to life the way that they do in the movie. Um, But they kind of are like halfway between. Um, Some of them come back to life fully. Some of them are sort of still shambling around dead. Some of them, but they don't eat people anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how the the ending of the book is still hopeful, but it's more like the problem isn't solved forever. Yeah. Interesting. It seems like the book was very philosophical. Aggressively so. Which makes it an odd choice to make into a movie. That's that's real hard. To take a movie that, like, or to take a story that, at face value, is very high concept. Yes. Like, zombie rom-com. What's going on inside a zombie's head? <laughs> but, like, pulling, seeing seeing a philosophical writing and going, ooh, funny movie with zombies and kissing. And it, it just seems like such an odd choice to adapt. The book is more... The book is less of a romance. It definitely is a romance. 
But the book is less of a romance and more kind of a treatise on how the author feels about existence. And it kind of is like, it's a justification of itself. Because Perry wanted to be an author until he, till his dad died and he kind of gave up. Yeah. The other thing is that R, R has multiple conversations inside his head with Perry um, even after he no longer has the brain anymore, he's still getting flashes of Perry's life. And uh, he also, when he goes into the stadium, all of the other kind of souls that he's consumed also start speaking to him sort of en masse. Don't like that. <laughs> it's not as, like, they're not all as distinct as Perry, but it's Perry really feels like a suicide metaphor because it's one of those things where it's like, you know, that story where you hear where it's like people who attempt suicide, especially by like jumping off bridges or whatever, if they survive, they talk about how like after they've jumped after the point of no return, they realize everything they were looking at was solvable. Everything that seemed so overwhelming was something they could actually fix. Yeah. That's kind of the Perry character role is like, I'm dead now. You have eaten my brain. But I'm going to live in you because I don't want to die. And you also don't want to die. Even though you're already dead, you still want to live. And I think that's why the two kind of meld together. Um, yeah. And it's also the the voices of all of the souls. Uh, they kind of function as a chorus type character because they're the ones that are saying it's very Woody Allen. Let me put my thoughts into you. Um, <laughs> I like how you say Woody Allen and then like the next phrase is the title of a Dana Gould stand up special. <laughs> <laughs> I would but never go on. <laughs> I would never insult Dana Gould that way. <laughs> He is a much better comedian and man than Woody Allen. Such a sweetheart when we met him. Yeah. Such a kind man. Yes. Yeah. Fuck Woody Allen, though. Truly. So they function as this chorus-type character that's really explaining, like, what humanity has become. Because they talk about how, like, they also now want R to live. Because they talk about how humanity has fallen. And they're like, slowly we stripped away everything that was, like, worthwhile about life like art music um entertainment enjoyment fun all of that has now been siphoned out because it got to the point where it was you have to survive all you can do is survive but that's kind of what the character of julie is is she's the one that's like i am not going to let this horrible survivalist world destroy the joy that i have in living and some of that, like, remains in the movie, because there's that scene, first, second act, when they're living at the airport, and they spend their days listening to records. They steal a car from the parking lot and drive it around the, around the does, uh, airstrip. Does she teach him how to drive? She tries, and it just does not go well. <laughs> he is not a good driver. <laughs> they, they, yeah, they have that montage of fucking around and having fun. Something... I, oh, sorry. Continue. I was going to say, that's for, like, the the humanity aspect of it it's so the the film includes a lot of uh R's internal monologue because the for the first 
It's all that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, the character's nonverbal, but the whole idea is what's he doing? But you can't have a whole movie just be internal monologue. You have to have action. So a lot of the philosophy is taken out of the movie. And you were saying that the like central theme of it is like about humanity and what that means. So I got a completely different read from the movie this time on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's lacking in the philosophical talk. It's just what we see on the screen. I got a weird stance on immigration from this movie. Oh, now boy. let me let me explain. It was triggered when that scene I was saying earlier, where Perry's meeting Colonel Grigio and he's saying, "Oh, you're going to join your dad and build the wall." You know, those three words mean a lot more than they used to mean. So immediately, I'm watching the movie through that lens. And it's very interesting that the happy ending of the movie... Because I think it's safe to say the movie has a happier ending than the book. Yes. Grigio doesn't die. The zombies become humanified. Mm-hmm. M remembers his name and meets a girl uh, who helps him with his umbrella. In the book, it's Nora. Oh, is it Nora? It looked like Nora, but it wasn't in the, in movie, the movie. I don't think it is. Yeah. Uh, but I thought it was, because she had a similar, like, face. But anyway. But with the, the whole the wall thing... The status quo at the start of the film is no one gets across the wall. We shoot them. Which, if you're paying any sort of attention to what's we going just drown on, them in real life. Yeah, what's going on in the southern border? It's it might get there soon, and that's no bueno. Uh, the end of the movie is oh, they're actually people too. We need to accept them, except those ones that are darker and faster and a little more violent. We still can't let those in. <laughs> It's not necessarily uh, the best. (laughs) So, um, something that the book does really well is it tries not to place itself in a time period, and that's very intentional. Like, Julie, when she's going through R's record collection, she's like, dude, you have nothing here from, like, past 1999. Is that when you died? And... It's, it's played as a joke, but it's also like, R's like, I don't know. I don't know how long I've been dead. It's hard to tell. And um, they're also, when they're in the stadium, they're saying later, Julie and Nora are having a conversation. And they're talking about, oh, did you hear that the last country just fell? It's one of the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, I think. And I feel like it'd be Iceland, because they're their own little island. <laughs> and then... Um, Nora is, it's also pointed out that Nora is dark-skinned. Um, and that's something where Julie's like, yeah, like, this used to be America, but, like, at least you have, like, Ethiopian. And she's like, what does that mean, that I'm darker-skinned? It doesn't matter. We're all going to be gray eventually. Yeah. And that's also something that um, R talks about is when he, there's two, when he gets married and has kids, uh, the two kids that he's presented with are a little girl and a little boy, and he describes them as, like, their features. The little girl looks like she may have been African, and the little boy looks like he may have been Arab because of the clothing that he's wearing, etc. And he's like, but at this point, it really doesn't matter because, you know, we're all dead. And that's kind of an interesting way to look at it, too, is, like, everyone is... We're all going to be gray eventually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even on like a, like a futurist scale, 
in post in a post racist society, everyone will be a nice mocha brown. <laughs> yes. The dream. Um, Happy Black History Month, y'all. <laughs> it's it's funny that you mentioned that Nora was a uh, a, a person of color in the in the book because they cast a white actor. <laughs> she was in Crazy Stupid Love. They were in Crazy Stupid Love. Oh, they're non-binary. They are. Leo Tipton. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, they are very charming. I enjoyed their performance. Yeah, their, both. Per- their performance is great in this movie. They're probably the best part of the movie. Actually, uh, Nick Holt's physicality is great, too. Yeah. Um, They actually worked with uh, Cirque du Soleil performers to get the motion right. Ah. And that was... Uh, Nick said that was one of like, the hardest parts of the shoot was practice on the movements and the how to get the body shape and the the motion and the physicality carrying the weight of dead muscle basically which is why it looks so good and why that scene and it's why that scene that's in the trailer when he tells her she's doing too much is so funny because she's doing what every zombie in every movie does (laughs) but it looks so over the top um so speaking of zombies, yes, is there any sex in the movie? Nope. So this book, it really feels like just a man having a midlife crisis. In the book, R is described as being a young professional. Uh, he looks, he's like, I don't know what I was before, but I'm wearing slacks, a white shirt, and a red tie. And I don't know how old I am. I could have been in my 20s. I could have been in my 30s. I I look like a young professional just starting in my career. His best friend, M, is much bigger, much bulkier, and a pervert. He repeatedly describes him as being a pervert uh, who watches pornography that he finds from uh, people's luggage in the airport and he also tries to have sex with his girlfriends, but it's mostly them just, like, bouncing together. There's also a point where R finds his wife um, having sex with another zombie, but again, it's described as them just, like, laying on top of each other and, like, bouncing together. And oh boy, it really feels like the author was just talking about the meaninglessness of existence if you're not paying attention. So at any point during these sex scenes, and I'm going somewhere with this, I promise, do they uh, discuss the, how do I phrase this properly, the consistency of zombie ejaculate? There is none. So another book that came out in 2010 (laughs) is called Paul is Undead. God. And it is basically the history of the band The Beatles, but told as if they are zombies. I read this in college. It is of a course you did. It is a fantastic book. When they talk about sex, their cum is dust. Of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, no, the other fluids that come out of them is uh, black blood. Yeah, that standard zombie shit. Yeah. God, zombies really were in the zeitgeist then, weren't they? Yeah. That was like a zombie boom back then. Mm-hmm. World War Z... Ugh. Oh, isn't that like... That's Max Landis, isn't it? Um, no. The book is good. The movie's terrible. I haven't seen the movie. I loved the book. No. Why did I think that was Max Landis? It's someone's son. Yes. Because he also did the zombie survival guy. 
Yes. Max yeah. Brooks. Max Mel Brooks. Brooks' kid. Yes. Sorry, wrong Max. <laughs> wrong Nepo Max. Yeah. I am trying to think if there's anything else I want to touch on. Was this like the same time that... This is around the same time they were doing Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and... Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, the book, I think, had just come out. Sense and Sensibilities and Sea Dragons. <laughs> sea Monsters, yes. Sea Monsters, excuse me. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Yeah, what was up with, like, 2010, man? I don't know, man. Yeah, P and P and Z was 2009. Like... But the movie came out much later. Yeah, like, way later. Like, same with World War Z. Yeah, it was when they were kind of, like, tapping... When the zombie well was going dry. When Walking Dead was losing numbers. <laughs> when, the zo- when there was nothing left in the zombie well but dusty semen. <laughs> <laughs> Just powdery spunk lining the walls of that well. Tuck's masculinity. That's, oh. that's where all that started. Oh, yeah. It really feels like... R is just undergoing uh, therapy <laughs> and emotional intelligence. He like he literally has to realize that the he sees himself as a person and he wants the living to see him as a person, but he doesn't see the other zombies as people. Like even M, he doesn't ascribe a, an inner monologue to M. Dude's got main character syndrome. He really does. It's. It's literally a man learning that other people have feelings and thoughts. Yeah, and unfortunately a lot of men don't learn that. <laughs> I I feel as though they kind of, they de-aged R or settled on an age for him to make it less gross. Yeah. Because Julie is like 17 or 18. As as much as I don't like the uh, the the melanin change with Nara, mm-hmm. I do appreciate the age gap change with with R. Yeah, it's much appreciated, especially since like I was what twenty three when this movie came out. I looked like the guy. Of course, I'm going to relate to the to the character a little bit harder. Yeah. Well, we talked a lot about themes of the book. What a, do you want to go into uh, some more about the movie? So thematically there's not much more to talk about like uh, like I said a lot of that philosophic don't hurt yourself a lot of the philosophy was stripped from the movie because it it was made to be you know a mid-budget February release date movie popcorn movie you know it wasn't gonna be anything more than a romantic comedy starring a zombie so I don't really have a lot to talk about. It's it's so straightforward. If you know Romeo and Juliet, you know the movie. Just like that weird immigration thing, and that's more in hindsight. But the movie itself was directed and written by Jonathan Levine. He did uh, 50-50, and he did The Night Before. He had some other ones. I think those are his more popular ones that uh, sandwich that. R, as we've talked about, was played by Nicholas Holt, Mad Max Fury Road, X-Men First Class, My Mirror in 2013. <laughs> uh, Julie was Teresa Palmer. Uh, she was in The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Hacksaw Ridge. Oh, Sorcerer's Apprentice is what I know her from. Mm-hmm. I always confuse... I think she looks a lot like Hayden Panettiere. She's like Wish. She, wish Hayden Panettiere. <laughs> she's like... If Hayden Pennant, oh my god! I cannot pronounce her last name either. She's like if Hayden didn't have any of the things that made her memorable. Memorable. 
like just cleaned up, like polished. She's like, she's like, if you told an AI to do an image of Hayden Penetary, that is rude to Teresa Palmer. It is rude because I thought she was great. Yeah, she's super like, charming. Uh, M was played by uh, Rob Corddry. Oh, that's yep. Hot Tub Time Machine, Children's Hospital. Mark, I hope when you watch this, you pop when you see Rob Corddry show up. <laughs> I know he loves him. Uh, Perry was played by Dave Franco. Yeah, the, the good talented one. Franco. The good one. Uh, he later went on to do Neighbors and future episode of The Pod, The Disaster Artist. You keep saying it. It's going to happen. Uh, we discussed Nora, Leo Tipton. Uh, they were on the, was it the 11th season? Something. Of America's Next Top Model. And then, like you said, Crazy Stupid Love. And Colonel Grigio, John Malkovich. You know him from Being John Malkovich. And a future episode of The Pod, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Oh, God, he's in Perks? He's apparently in Perks. I don't remember him, but I haven't seen that in ten years. Is he also an adaptation? Or do I just think so? Because he, he is an adaptation, but he's playing himself on the set of Being John Malkovich. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can't wait to do adaptation. Oh god, that's gonna be a nightmare of an episode. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be a fucking mess. Cause that movie Don't ruin it. Anywho. <laughs> I don't even have any like good trivia. The only thing is we keep referring to it as like nondescript American city. They shot it in Montreal. I do think. I think. It's supposed to be New York, judging from... I don't know enough about stadiums. I would have to do research and find out what fucking stadium was called City Stadium. So C-I-T-I, like the bank. So New York has City Field. Yeah. No one calls it City Stadium, except for foreign tourists who don't understand the difference between stadium and field in American sports. Well, that's the thing, is it doesn't matter in the yeah, apocalypse. I guess. And also, Julie is not from there. She moved there. Okay. Um, that's... So maybe New York? It was definitely not New York in the movie, because that's such an iconic skyline, and it was not that skyline. Yeah, and I feel like that's another thing that the book does well. It also, like, setting itself in in no time. It sets itself, because it's like, oh, we're going to the old Pfizer building. What fucking city doesn't, what metropolitan area doesn't have a fucking Pfizer building, you know? So I just had a thought. Uh-huh. Uh, City Field wasn't always City Field. Yeah, that's why I would want to look up, like, what, like, what stadium was City sponsoring? Like, it, and when I say it wasn't, I mean, it became City Field in 2009, so when did he write it? Because it was published early 2010. When did he write it? Because before before it was City, it was a uh, it was Shea Stadium. Okay. It he could also it could be a joke. I mean, it was a different stadium, but that's beside the point. Um, like it could be a joke. Is that it's City Stadium and he just used the bank? Um, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like he just went, okay, it's going to be a nondescript stadium. Uh, all these other stadiums are named after banks. What's a bank that doesn't have a stadium? City Stadium. And then, lo and behold, in New York City, <laughs> City Field gets erected Like while he's writing the novel. So, the reason that I say I think it's New York is because in the sequel... Which there's I, a fucking sequel? <laughs> there's a sequel and what's a prequel. It, what's it called? Warmer Bodies? 
Is the prequel Cold Bodies? The prequel is called The New Hunger, and the sequel is called The Burning World. Is, I have. Is, read... is he working on Warm Bodies One and a Half, which is just his piece on Rosencrantz, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? Like. So I have actually read the prequel. I haven't read the sequel. I just found out about the sequel today. Wait, when did you read the prequel? I read the prequel it, after I read the book the first time. Oh, okay. Because um, I found out about that, and I was like, oh, he wrote the prequel in 2015. He wrote the sequel in 2017, or it came out in 2017. Okay. Um, the reason I say that it's New York, or I think it's supposed to be New York, is that it's described as them going into America, into the wastelands of America, which makes me think they're going in inland. towards the Midwest, inland. Um, that may be completely inaccurate. I, I mean, that could be any coastal city. Uh, but the prequel is actually um, pretty interesting because it is R immediately after he becomes a zombie. Okay. And it is heavily implied. Now, bear in mind, I haven't read this in several years, but it is heavily implied that R either turned and murdered his girlfriend, fiance, partner, or his girlfriend, fiance, partner, whatever, is the one who turned him. Mm. And she is described as looking like Julie. It's like the beginning of Zombieland. Kind of, yeah. Not the beginning, but that scene in Zombieland. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, something else that's kind of an important fact that... This came out in 2010, which was the height of Twilight Mania. Mm-hmm. He goes out of his way, the author goes out of his way to point out that zombies have to eat people. They can't eat animals. It doesn't work. They have to eat people. There's something specific about the life force of a human body that sustains zombies in a way that meat or blood from an animal does not. That just gives me the same energy as our professor in Vampire Lit, who waited until after the ad drop period was over to say that Twilight is not literature and will not be discussed in this class. And 24 of the 27 people in that room sank. And you and I went, oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, we ended to win it now. <laughs> so, uh... The, the line is something to the effect of uh, fashionable moral uh, fashionable moral vegetarianism is not an option. <laughs> it's like, okay, Isaac, we get it. We've all read Stephanie's book, too. Shots fired. <laughs> Steph catching strays over here. Uh, so, do you recommend the book? Think it's worth a read, or...? It is... You have to go into it understanding that it's a little bit more dense than um the novel or than the the movie but yes isaac marion has an interesting um take on it if you want a zombie novel that isn't quite as aggressive on the um philosophy but still explores the similar ideas um i would also recommend rotten ruin by jonathan mayberry that's more ya um but I do recommend the book. It's the version that I listened, the audiobook version that I listened to was eight hours. The digital book version is like 320 pages with um, 
and, and actually has a little snippet. I think the first chapter of um, the prequel. Oh God, we didn't even talk about Julie's mom. How her dad killed her unceremoniously, like the moment she was bit. And how that's, like, a heartbreaking reveal in the movie, because at this point, Julie knows that she could have turned back at this point, but her dad just fucking offed her. So, her mom goes crazy and runs into a horde of zombies in the book. Oh, it's not specified in the movie. Yeah, it's basically, uh, in, in the book, she essentially talks about how, uh, she, she watched her mom kind of losing her mind, basically, and one night her mom came into the bedroom and just watched her for a while and then apparently walked out and just walked into the street and all they ever recovered was, like, bits of her. Ugh. Yeah. She describes it as they buried an empty dress. Gross. And that's what kind of broke her dad and turned him into what he is now. But do you recommend the uh, movie? <laughs> you know what? I do. It's, you know, it's not winning Oscars. But it's not pissing me off. It's it's a cool 90 minutes. It's a smooth runtime. It goes by real quick. The performances are all great. No one's no one's dialing it in. Everyone's not sorry, phoning it in. No one's phoning it in. Everyone's, you know, doing what's required of it. The writing's good. There's some good humor in there. It's edited well. The the issue I have with it is the Deus Ex Machina of Love is the Answer. Is such a hard thing to do outside of children's cinema that it, it it reads almost like with a fake sincerity but that just might be my cynical ass I mean it's not much different in the book so <laughs> yeah like it's like that's the only like sticking point with me is like You're... oh everyone's getting better because oh love I guess maybe <laughs> Hope? But... Sure. I mean, honestly, considering how fucking terrible our landscape looks right now, maybe we just need some fucking hope. Yeah, you know, that's fair. And there was a part of me watching it uh, with that read going, yeah, alright, no matter what apocalypse hits us, as long as we stay together and we hope and we aren't bigoted towards people that are different from us, we can all contribute to rebuilding society. Like, there's, there's that level of hope that, that we need. It kind of feels like this was, like, one of the turning points of towards, like, that new sincerity that we were kind of experiencing. Everyone was sort of... It was in the aughts. It was cool to be, like, edgy and, like, oh, this is terrible. How little can you feel? But kind of, like, around 2008, 2009, 2010, it was more like, no, we are going to start embracing things unapologetically and it's going to, we're going to be sincere in what we like. Like when me and my friends started watching My Little Pony Friendship is Magic and not because of the weird porn online. Uh, <laughs> but when we started watching that and it was like, okay, no, this is just quality entertainment with good morals and I feel good when I'm watching it. I'm not like forced, I'm not challenged buy it but sometimes you just need you know a little pick me up and that's kind of what this is there's some elements that are more challenging because there is that like morality of is he human is he not that kind of thing but it's not yeah. heavy handed it's not Schindler's List right yeah it's <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, 
Like, on a scale of Oogie Loves to Schindler's List, it falls neatly. <laughs> Just... I'm, listen, I'm tired. <laughs> I've had a long week. <sighs> but yeah, on... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not Schindler's List, but it's not, you know, the Happy Little Elves, either. It's... <laughs> it's fine. It's a movie. It's good. Whatever. I don't care. <laughs> it's enjoyable. And that should be enough sometimes. Yeah. Exactly. In my notes under recommend her, meh, it's fine. <laughs> I probably could have just said that. <laughs> <laughs> nope, we had to have the long drawn out pauses. Ugh. At least you know what to edit, right? <laughs> you think I'm editing this shit? Yeah, I'm editing this shit. I know I am. Ugh. Well, I got nothing else to say. Much like the nonverbal R. Uh, <laughs> you know that uh, back in 2013 when I moved out here, I can't remember if it's somebody I knew or a complete stranger, but there was definitely a girl who tried to get me to tell her or to say, keep you safe to her in our voice before I had seen the movie. My love. And I did not realize she was flirting. I am in awe of your tism. I got that tiz riz, baby. <laughs> and on that note, you can find us on uh, <laughs> various places on the internet. Our link tree is in the description uh, in your podcast player. Uh, we have an email address where you can send us things if you want us to... If you have opinions you want to get, if we get something wrong, which I'm sure we do occasionally, oh, yeah. absolutely, uh, feel free to correct us. Send us emails. Uh, say hello. Correct our pronunciation of Hayden Panettiere. Good old HP. <laughs> so what are we? What, what's up next? So there is one other thing in February that we mentioned before. Now that Valentine's Day will soon be over, and it is. Black History Month. Yay! And just because we are a Caucasian-ass podcast with two honkies <laughs> from the sticks of Pennsylvania, that doesn't mean we can't, you know, do a little celebration of uh, black history. And our next episode will be The Color Purple. Yeah. Is it the old one? Is it the new one? Is it both? It's gonna be both. It's gonna be both, because I kind of want to see the new one. It looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> I like musicals, and musicals are coming back, even though the uh, trailer makers don't want us to know that. Why are they hiding the fact that it's a musical? <laughs> like the new Mean Girls, which future episode of the pod is a musical. Which, how did we die? I, oh god. The, the Wonka was a musical. Color Purple is a musical. Musicals are great. Singing in the Rain is one of history's greatest films. Why are we trying to hide that we're making musicals, guys? In the Heights was excellent. In the Heights was fucking incredible. So we're doing the color purple. Watch more musicals. I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs>